Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. Our essay this week is called The Peaceable Kingdom. It's a guest essay by novelist Ron Hansen. Ron's many books include Exiles from the year 2008, and more recently from 2011, A Wild Surge of Guilty Passion. Among his many honors are a Guggenheim Foundation grant, an award in literature from the American Academy and National Institute of Arts and Letters, two grants from the National Endowment for the Arts, and a three-year fellowship from the Lindhurst Foundation. Ron Hansen is currently the Gerard Manley Hopkins Professor in the Arts and Humanities at Santa Clara University, where he earned an MA in Spirituality in 1995. The Peaceable Kingdom. For Sunday, December the 8th, 2013, the second Sunday in Advent. It's been said that the prime duty of the biblical prophets was to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. Our gorgeous passage from Isaiah 11, 1-10 is an example of the latter. Originating in Jerusalem in the 8th century BCE, this lengthiest of the Hebrew prophecy scrolls was probably collected, reorganized, and augmented late in the 6th century, when the fall of Babylon seemed near and the Jews could hope for a return to Jerusalem. Isaiah, son of Amoz, the first of three authors responsible for the final text, seems to have written chapters 6 to 11 in a time of political crisis, when Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel invaded the southern kingdom of Judah in order to force it to join their anti-Assyrian coalition. Ahaz was king of Judah then, a man in his late 20s who was viewed negatively in other biblical accounts for his religious apostasy and his final willing indenture to the king of Assyria. Without overtly judging Ahaz or his Jewish predecessors, Isaiah does offer an implicit criticism of their reigns in oracles about a glorious future king who would be even superior to the legendary David. Isaiah foretold that the dynasty that began with Jesse, David's father, would produce an ideal ruler who would be filled with the Spirit of the Lord and the same qualities that we now identify as the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit, wisdom, understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge, and fear of the Lord, which includes piety. In the tradition of the Hebrew psalmists, Isaiah employs couplets containing parallel imagery to form a poetic description of a new Eden, initially stating a claim about the expected outcomes of the shoot of Jesse, then giving that statement further emphasis through a roughly equivalent pronouncement. And so we read, Not by appearance shall he judge, not by hearsay shall he decide but he shall judge the poor with justice and decide a right for the lands afflicted. 
worldly enemies, predators and prey, quietly inhabit this peaceable kingdom that is to come. Wolf and lamb, leopard and kid, calf and lion, with a little child to guide them. Christians have long interpreted that child typologically as a prefiguration of the baby born in Bethlehem more than 2,000 years ago, whose goal it was to establish, as water covers the sea, the kingdom of God on earth. In a rattle and in a rather startling example of prescience, Isaiah notes that this child, whom we know as Jesus, will be a signal for the nations and a rallying cry for even the Gentiles. The baby shall play by the cobra's den, and the child lay his hand on the adder's lair. That figurative illustration seems to have been behind John the Baptist's affliction of the overly comfortable Pharisees and Sadducees. In our Gospel account, they are associated with Isaiah's venomous snakes when John scolds them as a brood of vipers. And Matthew hearkens back to the final stanza in chapter 10 of Isaiah, when he has John the Baptist proclaim, Even now the axe lies at the root of the trees. Therefore every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Isaiah had written in chapter 10:33, The sovereign Lord of hosts will hew off the tree crowns with an axe. The tall ones shall be felled, the lofty ones cut down. And later, again in chapter 27 of Isaiah, the nation is compared to a productive orchard. In days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. In John's preaching, there would soon be a day of wrath when those who had not fruitfully done good deeds would be destroyed. And neither the ritual of baptism in the Jordan nor their reliance on being children of Abraham would prevent the haughty religious leaders from being felled like rotten trees and thrown into the fire. Crucial to John's message was the need not only for repentance, but for righteous activity as proof that a cleansing moral purity and conversion of heart had actually taken place. In Christianity's season of Advent, its time of expectant waiting and preparation for the birth of Jesus at Christmas, there are similar penitential themes that recall not just a historical event in Palestine, but our contemporary need to prepare ourselves for the second coming of Christ, whose rule will be characterized by the hope and peace of Isaiah's poetry, as well as the fierce final judgment proclaimed by John the Baptist. The Peaceable Kingdom on Isaiah 11 and Matthew 3 by the novelist Ron Hansen. For books this week, 
I review a short memoir by Asiya Bibi. It's called Blasphemy, a memoir, sentenced to death over a cup of water. Chicago, Chicago Review Press, 2011 and 2013, 137 pages. Asiya Bibi is an illiterate farmer's daughter from the small village of Itan Wali in Pakistan. Back in June of 2009, she was picking berries in the sweltering summer heat when she stopped for a drink of water at the well. Her fellow villagers were incensed. They accused Bibi, a Christian, of contaminating their well and so blaspheming their Muslim religion. Bibi and her family were attacked by a village mob. After a police investigation, Pakistan's courts convicted her of blasphemy, imprisoned her in a filthy and solitary cell, fined her the equivalent of $1,100, and sentenced her to death by hanging. But that is just the beginning. Bibi's case attracted worldwide attention. Both Muslim extremists and democracy-minded citizens adopted her cause, and she became a symbol for both sides. Tens of thousands of extremists marched in Lahore, Islamabad, and Karachi, demanding her death. Her attorney contacted Hillary Clinton, and the Pope asked for her release in a public address. Adding fuel to the fire, both the Muslim governor of Punjab and the Christian minister for minorities were brutally assassinated for their public opposition to the blasphemy laws and for their support of Bibi's release. One of their sons was also kidnapped. And let's be clear, although Bibi is a Christian, the vast majority of Islamist violence in the Middle East is targeted at fellow Muslims. As best as I can tell at the time of this writing, Bibi is still in prison four years later, hoping for a pardon. Her husband and five children have gone into hiding after receiving death threats. If executed, Bibi would be the first woman in Pakistan to be lawfully executed for blasphemy by Pakistan's courts. She told her story to the French journalist Anne Isabel Tollette, who has lived in Pakistan since 2008. Proceeds from the sale of the book go to help Bibi's cause. Asiya Bibi the title of the book, Blasphemy, a Memoir, Sentenced to Death Over a Cup of Water. For movies this week, I review the documentary film, Solinger, from 2013. This documentary has just enough hype and melodramatic music to flirt with phoniness, which is wonderfully ironic given J.D. Salinger's disdain for fakery. 
Still, it's hard not to like a movie about one of America's most famous and famously reclusive writers. A dozen or so talking heads narrate the main features of Salinger's life. From his privileged upbringing on Park Avenue in New York City, to his death at age 91 in 2010 in Cornish, New Hampshire, where he had lived in seclusion since 1953. They give special emphasis to his war experience. Salinger landed on Normandy Beach on D-Day and saw active combat for almost 300 days. They also chronicle his several relationships with significantly younger women, and, of course, the publication of Catcher in the Rye in 1951. The movie says that beginning in 2015, there will be five new Salinger books published. This movie and a companion biography were, re were released together at the same time. The documentary film Salinger For the second week in Advent, we've posted one of my all-time favorite poems by John Benjamin, who lived from 1906 to 1984. The title of his powerful poem is called Christmas. The bells of waiting Advent ring. The tortoise stove is lit again, and lamp oil light across the night has caught the streaks of winter rain in many a stained-glass window sheen, from Crimson Lake to Hooker's Green. The holly in the windy hedge, and round the manor house the yew will soon be stripped to the deck the ledge, the altar, font, and arch and pew, so that the villagers can say, the church looks nice on Christmas Day. Provincial public houses blaze, Corporation tramcars clang. On lighted tenements I gaze, where paper decorations hang. And bunting in the red town hall says Merry Christmas to you all. And London shops on Christmas Eve are strung with silver bells and flowers, as hurrying clerks the city leave to pigeon-haunted classic towers. And marbled clouds go scudding by the many-steepled London sky. And girls in slacks remember Dad, and oafish louts remember Mum. And sleepless children's hearts are glad, and Christmas morning bells say, Come, even to shining ones who dwell safe in the Dorchester Hotel. And is it true this most tremendous tale of all, seen in a stained-glass window's hue, a baby in an ox's stall, the maker of the stars and sea, become a child on earth for me? And is it true? For if it is, no loving fingers tying strings around those tissued fripperies, the sweet and silly Christmas things, bath salts and inexpensive scent, and hideous tie so kindly meant. No love that in a family dwells, no caroling in frosty air, 
nor all the steeple-shaking bells can with this single truth compare, that God was man in Palestine and lives today in bread and wine. John Betjeman, 1906-1984, an Advent poem called Christmas. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for the second Sunday in Advent, December 8, 2013. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. 